Thank you so much, Reagan. Julia, wonderful job. Take your Bibles, please, and turn to Galatians chapter number 6. We finished up the study of Galatians this week. We've entitled the uh, series, of course, The Fruitful Gospel of Grace. And that's really Paul's aim here. There's so much grace all throughout the book of Galatians, countering the other messages that had seeped into the early church. There's so much gospel in the book of Galatians because the only hope that we have to overcome anything in this life that would hinder us and the only hope that we have to live in eternity with Christ is the gospel, the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then, of course, grace just saturating. Let me just walk you back through if you don't mind, just some of where we've been. The freedom that Paul is calling us to is because of who Jesus is and his finished work on the cross. The freedom he's calling us from is freedom from the bondage not only of our sin, but freedom from thinking we need to do things to impress God. We talked about the fruitful gospel of grace, the fruitful teaching of the Apostle Paul in the book of Galatians, and he reminded us of the doctrine of justification. Justification is the gracious act of God by which God declares a sinner righteous solely through faith in Jesus Christ. We mentioned that the opposite of justification is condemnation. We talked about the fact that God saves us And the grace that saves us is also grace that transforms us into a new creation. We we looked at a few of the covenants and reminded ourselves that this thing began with faith and we live by faith and we will finish by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. As Christians, we have been adopted by the Father into the family. And this is a father who will never disappoint you. He'll never say the wrong thing at the wrong time as we earthly fathers are so prone to do. Even trying our best, we can blow it. Our heavenly father doesn't. He loves us with a never-ending, never-stopping, always-chasing-after-us kind of love. And what he does is what's best for us. As we grow in grace, we recognize that the way to move forward is to live passionately for his glory and his purpose. Christ set us free for freedom's sake, freedom from our slavery to sin, from our religious bondage. We're called to steward that freedom Christ has given us for the selfless service of others, not just selfish consumption for our own pleasure. We're, We're coming up to where we are this morning, but we We're reminded to keep in step with the Holy Spirit. What does it mean? We stay in the Bible. As we do, the Lord shows us and transforms our minds to have the fruit of his Holy Spirit, which is love, joy, and peace. Could anybody use some love, joy, and peace flooding their minds? I could. As we keep in step, we notice that we treat others differently. We treat them with patience and kindness and goodness. This is the fruit of the Holy Spirit. Our bio begins to be rewritten by God himself as our character and our lives are marked with faithfulness, gentleness, 
and self-control. This is the work of God in the believer. And this is what it means to be filled with the Spirit. And all of this fruit, all of this filling, so that we can be together as the body of Christ and the Holy Spirit shows that we really care for one another and we richly share with one another. That's just some of what we covered. This morning, we come to all of this final verbiage of Galatians with expectations of Paul underscoring the main point as the Holy Spirit is inspiring him. The Holy Spirit has Paul focus as he wraps up this letter to the churches on one specific drum that he beats, and he's beaten it all throughout the book. Let's look at the text in verse 11, Galatians 6, 11. It's an interesting verse. It's probably not a memory verse. You probably don't have this on a t-shirt anywhere, but look at what it says. See with what large letters I'm writing to you with my own hand. Well, now that's, that's kind of interesting. Wait, well then who's been writing the rest of this? Was he writing in small print the rest of the time? Was he writing in different letters? Did he write in numbers before this? What's going on, Pastor Chad? With his own hand, was he writing with his feet before? What's the, the, what's the deal? Well, let's settle something right up front. Who is the author here? What's going on? Well, first and foremost, God is the author. God is the one inspiring. The Bible tells us in 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is breathed out by God, profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. So God is the author, but God is using Paul because no prophecy of scripture came through private interpretation or from the will of men. The Bible says that men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Spirit. So God is the main author. He's using Paul, but he's also using Paul's style and the custom of the day, and that's what's going on here, okay? So what does it mean, these large letters? Paul is following a custom of the Roman world. This is just a little history side note, but it's worth addressing because it's a weird verse. Um, these official correspondence secretaries, if you will, had a name. They were called Amanueses, and they were skilled in writing in such a way with spelling and grammar and syntax and all the things, and they also were skilled at writing very small on parchment because parchment was very expensive. Like, I was just thinking, we go down, if we run out of paper here in the office, we walk to Office Depot or Office Max, we pick up a ream of paper, and we bring it back and go for it, right? It's and then we mess up that ream, we just go get some more. Now, we're not going to keep wasting money, but still, paper is plentiful. We don't have to think about it. Not so with parchment. So this, this writer is writing small. And so Paul then, as is custom, the author, the writer, would take that pen to sign their name. But instead of signing, just signing his name, Paul is writing something. So they'll notice on the parchment it was written a certain way. And then they get to the end, the letter and the style changes. Paul picks up the pen. And as he picks up the pen, he's going to underscore his main point. And his main point is what? Salvation comes through Christ alone. Hallelujah. That's it. He wants to point them to the main thing, just like we should, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's a little intro, little background to get you right into the text. There are two lifestyles on display in this closing text that Isaac read to us just a few moments ago. Verses 12 and 13 show us, watch this, the self-centered show. 
And this is certainly a way to live. There are people behind pulpits, on stages all across this region and this nation, even the world. And this is their M.O. It's all about them, it's all about the show, and it's all about advancing their brand. Disciples aren't being made. People are not standing in the gap for the vulnerable and the voiceless. You just see a lot of religious activity without a lot of holy action. And Paul is pushing back on that. And I don't know if you picked up on this, but he's pretty much had a problem with this, the whole writing of Galatians. Let's look at the text. In 12 and 13, it's those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised, and only in order that they might not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. Paul has a blunt reproof for these Judaizers, these legalists, these false prophets, and I would add to that the showmen that take up so much space today in our churches, running things called services. Here's what he's saying. It's all for show. This is just for show. They're not really interested in you getting to know the Lord Jesus Christ. They're not really interested in you living as a new creation, being filled with the Spirit, walking in such a way that people look at you and are drawn to Jesus. They're not interested in that. They want to build their brand, advance their cause, and say, look, look what I've done. I convinced all these people to do this thing. They are persuasive. Make no mistake, they are persuaders. These folks, their message sounds believable, it sounds plausible, it's enticing. If it wasn't, nobody would listen to it. Whether it's from a false church or whether it's from the world, there are persuasive voices out there calling us away from the things that matter most. It's all for show, though. They're hypocrites. They want to force their view on you so that they can claim ministry success without any risk involved to themselves. Did you notice he said there they're doing this only in order that they might not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. So they took a little bit of Jesus and then mixed in a whole lot of other things so that they wouldn't be a target for those. I got news for you. If you're going to walk with the Lord Jesus Christ and you're going to open this Bible and see how to do that, you're going to be a target of ridicule from those who did not. You're going to be, this is uncomfortable, but you're going to be hated by some. They're going to like that you're kind and generous and all those things and exhibit the fruit of the Spirit, but they're going to think you're looney tunes for following Jesus and actually believing this Bible is true. But that's what Jesus' people do. They know that this is the Word of God forever settled in heaven. They're persuaders, they're hypocrites, they're compromisers. They want to build their kingdom without persecution. The Bible tells us in Proverbs 25, 14, clouds and wind without rain. That's what they're like. It's like a man who boasts of a gift he does not have and give. They're only interested in bragging rights. Romans 6, 17 and 18, Paul writes, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine you've been taught. Avoid them for such persons, listen to this, do not serve the Lord Christ. They serve their own appetites and by smooth talk, there it is, persuasiveness, and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. Paul said there's a self-centered way that's all for show 
Be careful of that. Watch that. Mark that. When leaders are self-centered, teaching their own plan of salvation, they have been marked. And we're commanded to avoid them. So there's the self-centered show, and now the bulk of the message this morning. Christ calls us to the cross-centered life. The cross-centered life. Galatians 6, 14 through 18. It's already been read. Allow me to pick and just point to a few phrases in there. The cross-centered life, first and foremost, I believe is a life that, look at it, boasts in the cross of Christ. Boasts in the cross. Do you see it in verse 14? I'm not going to boast in anything. Far be it for me to boast except in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. Why would Paul boast in the cross? Now remember, we're not in this century that he's writing in. The cross is still a heinous instrument of torture. In fact, crucifixion was the most cruel and agonizing means of execution ever devised. Nobody wore it as a piece of jewelry or had it as a tattoo. It was designed and then refined by the Romans, not just to kill, but to degrade and to humiliate. Imagine hanging on a cross, whipped, naked, with spikes in your arms and your legs, while everyone who walked past you spat on you, cursed you, and made fun of you. In fact, crucifixion was so bad, they had written into their own laws that no Roman could be executed that way. Paul wasn't glorying in the gore of the cross. He was glorying because he knew something more about the cross than others did. You see, Paul knew the person of the cross, the Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible tells us in 1 Timothy 3, great indeed is the mystery we confess of godliness he, Christ, was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by the angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up into glory. Acts 4, there's salvation in no one else. There's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Jesus Christ, no one had ever hung on a cross like him. He was crucified for the sins of of the world. He was virgin born, lived that sinless, spotless life, no guile in his mouth, no deceit in his mind. Lived a life that folks could follow and say, never a man lived such as this. Spoke in such a way that even his closest disciples said, never a man spoke such as this. Healed the lame, cleansed the leper, touched the untouchable, loved the unlovable. Jesus Christ the glory of God on display, the person of God with flesh on, the Word walking around on the world. What a God. And then willingly, willingly, He submitted to the suffering and the shame that led to the cross and His death and His burial because on the third day, God said it was enough and Jesus Christ got up from the grave he got up victorious over death and the grave. And he's seated at the right hand of the Father and he's inviting me and you to come and to follow him. 
He wants to make us new. He knew the person of the cross. He knew the power of the cross. That's why he could boast in the cross. It was the cross that brought forgiveness of sin because it bought it. It brought freedom because it bought it. It brought and bought hope. It brought and bought life. It brought and bought reconciliation to the holy God of the Bible, sinful man in need of redemption, hopeless, helpless, sinner lost. But the Alpha and Omega brings the answer to a cross. The cross did something. For those of you watching online, there are folks in here, and that was a good place for an amen. Paul was so radically cross-centered, it affected everything in his life. Spurgeon said of this verse, this was Paul's life verse. It was the theme of Paul's ministry. He stands in contrast to the show put on by those who are self-centered and wanting to build a kingdom or a brand. No, he says, I'm here to boast in Christ alone. Paul preached that justification was accomplished through the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ and nothing else. And that's what we preach here. And that's what men of God faithfully preach that open up this book and bring the bread of life. Think about all the things that capture our attention, some of our family members, the beauty of creation. Years ago, Stephen Curtis Chapman wrote a song And I love it. I found the words to it, and it's blessed me. It's been on my mind recently. How could I stand here and watch the sun rise? Follow the mountains where they touch the sky. Ponder the vastness and the depths of the sea and think for a moment the point of it all was to make much of me. No. I want to make much of you, Jesus. I want to make much of your love. I want to give you the praise and live today like you're so worthy of. I want to make much of your mercy and much of your cross. Take my life and let it be used to make much of you. That's why you were saved, to make much of Jesus, not just to get you to heaven. The psalmist in the Old Testament said in Psalm 44, 8, in God we have boasted continually and we will give thanks to your name forever can i tell you sometimes this is a side note why it's hard to come and show up on a sunday morning at grace covenant church and it's a little cooler this week than last week thank you lord right maybe not outside but inside but why it's hard sometimes to come in and get with it right and get in on it and be right there with the songs Can I suggest to you that if the only prep you do for worship is walking from your parked vehicle here, disabling and turning your phone volume down, you may want to back it up a bit. You might want to reflect on the goodness of God when you get up in the morning every day. You might want to make the boast of the Lord yours continually. Imagine singing a song of praise all week long that you couldn't shake from your head, shutting out a little of the other noise from the world and its persuasive voices and showing up ready to continue worshiping, not starting, continue worshiping. Well, Paul said uh, the cross-centered life is one that boasts in the cross of Christ. It's also one that is dead to the world. Well, that sounds appealing, doesn't it, on this uh, 4th of July weekend? Pastor, well, I've done that to you a couple of times. Dead to the world? 
He said, the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. That kind of conviction shows up in some of the ancient hymns that we had. We sang a few this morning. The last line there of faith of our fathers, we will be true to thee till death. It's poetic, but what does it mean? Allow me to grab Spurgeon one more time and give you some of his imagery this morning. I love it. Paul said he regards the world here as nailed up like a felon and hanged upon a cross to die. Remember the picture I gave you of the cross? Paul said what belongs there for the Christian is the world. Not the people of the world, but the world systems and everything that would pull us away from Christ. This world, its character is condemned. He knew that the world crucified its Savior. The world crucified the Creator God. It had gone to such a length of sin that it had hounded perfect innocence through the streets. It had scoffed at and maligned love with flesh on. It rejected eternal truth and preferred the lie. The Son of God, the Word with flesh on, it had put to death on the cross. And because of that, Spurgeon says, Paul is saying, I have ceased to care about glorying in men or making men glory in me. The world is dead to me and I to the world. I tell you what, if you ever meet somebody that the world is dead to them and Christ is alive to them, you will know because they will step forward in victory. They will proclaim the word of God with boldness, yes, with gentleness and respect and love, but they won't miss an opportunity to point people to Jesus because he's worth it. And the risk is worth it. Paul believed that. In verse 15, we see another dimension that Paul's been hammering all throughout this letter. He comes back and says, look, circumcision doesn't count for anything. Uncircumcision doesn't count for anything. All that matters is that you've been made new by Jesus. The cross-centered life is one that trusts Christ, not works. We trust in Christ alone. Nothing counts for anything toward our salvation except the grace of God being extended to us and our responding with faith. That's it. I heard someone say recently, broad is the way to destruction and the way to forgiveness and salvation is so narrow, the only thing we can bring is our sin. And Christ takes that, something ugly, and makes something beautiful from it. I tell you, the best thing I can give you on this verse is more scripture from Ephesians 2. Allow me to read it to you as the explanation for this point. And you were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now is at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived, all of us did, in the passions of our own flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, Ooh. but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ by grace you have been saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages 
he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Here it comes, you know it. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works. There it is. So that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. The cross-centered life is one that trusts Christ alone. And it's one that is marked with the peace and mercy and grace that only Christ can give. You see, you can fake niceness for a minute, I think. Some of you do it better than others, right? Um, You can fake some of these things, but you can't sustain them deep in your spirit without a work of the Holy Spirit. And the people of God, the Bible says, live with peace and mercy and grace upon them. Look at verse 16 and 18 quickly so I can get to verse 17. I'm going to circle back for the final point. And as for all who walk by this rule, what what rule are we talking about? I didn't see a rule, Pastor Chad. Is there something to obey? Yes. Live the cross-centered life, not the self-centered life. For all who walk the cross-centered life, look, peace and mercy are upon them and upon the Israel of God. Even those who were steeped in Judaism that have come to see Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, Paul is saying Jesus is all you need. There are some of those things you can continue to do, but you don't need to do those. They're not required. It's Christ alone. And if you'll ever figure that out, you'll have peace and mercy all over you. Verse 18, it's a benediction. We've used it before as that. And then he says, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. Peace, mercy, grace. Why? Because we're a new creation. The old has passed away. The new has come. Christ has taken the old turmoil, the old sin, the old bondage from us. The worst of us he took and laid it on himself on the cross. And then he took his righteousness and the freedom and the peace and the love that only he can give and gave that to you and to me. A sinner such as I. Lastly this morning as we finish our time, the cross-centered life is a life marked by Jesus. It's a life that's been marked by Jesus. Galatians 6, 17. From now on, Paul says, let no one cause me trouble. Okay, modern vernacular, talk to the hand. Right, he said, that is not even modern anymore. That's so 2001, right? So for those of you who are not that old, sorry. From now on, what he says, he, he ghosted him. He's gonna ghost him, is that better? He's gonna ghost him if they try to harass him anymore. He's going to do that because he's saying, I've answered all these things. I've shown you my credentials. I've shown you Christ is enough. I've shown you how lesser ways are lesser ways. Jesus is enough. And then he drops this little mark here. For I bear on my body, the King James said, in my body. I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. I have been marked by Jesus. Now that sounds poetic to us. Give me a moment. Let me tell you what Paul meant quite literally here and how that can apply to us today. 
The marks that Paul is speaking of are actual scars. He had literal disfigurements. He had been wounded, bruised, broken, bloodied, stoned, mutilated. His body had literal scars on it. Bear with me as I read to you how Ravenhill characterized this when he said, look closely at Paul, at that deathly, cadaverous countenance. That scarred body, that stooped figure of a man chastened by hunger, kept down by fasting, plowed by the Roman punisher's lash. That little body, brutally stoned at Lystra, starved in many places, that skin pickled for 36 hours in the Mediterranean Sea, and add to this list danger upon danger, and then multiply it with loneliness, and then count in the nearly 200 stripes, three shipwrecks, three beatings with rods, a stoning, a prison record, and deaths so many They were too many to count. These are the marks that Paul bore. And do you know what Paul is saying? Every single one was worth it. Because Christ is worthy. In that day, about four groups of people were marked with this stigmata, the word is. Four different groups of people would get a branding mark on them, not necessarily this kind of mark, but he says, I'm marked. It's a word that can mean a couple different things. We know his immediate application, what he means of it, his actual meaning, I should say. But the application for those around him, even in the day, would have been this branding mark that slaves would have gotten showing ownership to their master. They would have had the brand of their master, like a hot branding iron you'd see used for cattle. So the skin would blister and it couldn't be removed. Soldiers would get branded with a general's name under which they served. Before there were tattoos, they were still getting branded in that way. Religious zealots would um, put a branding usually on their face so that they were noticeable from, and they still do this today, they were noticeable from a ways off. Um, Hindus do this still today with a mark and others. But it was showing a lifelong commitment to a deity. Prisoners finally didn't have the orange Outfits that we know today are the prison garb that they would wear. They would get a mark on them to show that they had committed a heinous crime and needed to suffer. Think back to Cain in the Old Testament who bore a mark on him so that people knew not to end his misery but that he would suffer because of that. Turn that coin as followers of Christ. We are slaves to the master. We're branded. We belong to him. We've been bought with a price. We're not our own. We're slaves to Christ. As followers of Christ, like soldiers in the army, we have a mark on us that shows allegiance to him. We're soldiers in the army, not of the losing side, but of the side that actually is on the right side of history. We put on the armor of God, not to go turn on the television. We put on the armor of God to fight. As religious zealots, we are like those. We're dedicated worshipers. We worship the Lord in spirit and truth, and our lives show that. We're marked as believers. And a little contrast on the mark of prisoners. We still have some scars from our bondage, but we've been set free. And there are opportunities for us to tell others about a God who sets us free. Wow. I'm going to ask Julia to come. 
She's going to play a little transition, and then we're going to prepare for communion. And I'll ask the handful of deacons and elders present to be ready. There are two ways to live described here as we finish up Galatians, and it really works laying this across all of Galatians. There's the self-centered way that's all for show. You can live a self-centered life sitting on the pews at Grace Covenant Church. Be here Sunday after Sunday and show up for everything and it all be for show. It's possible. And then Paul points us to this cross-centered life that doesn't run from hard things, but that says Christ is worth it. Paul is describing a devotion here of people who are filled with the Spirit and have the fruit of the Spirit, not people who just talk a good game. There was a boy who was talking to his girlfriend on the phone, and he told her, I love you more than life itself. Sweetie, you're so precious to me, I worship the ground that you walk on. I would fight wild beasts to be at your side, he said. He told her, I would walk barefoot across hot coals to be near you. I would wade through a swamp of crocodiles to hold your hand. All the girls are swooning a bit. And then he said, and later on, if it's not raining and not too hot, I might come by to see you. That's how we are sometimes, wouldn't it? We talk a big game, but when it comes time to show up or put up, sometimes we're Shut up in the house. Letting other people fight the battles. Talk is cheap. The world doesn't need any more religious talk. The world needs to see the church, that's me and you, filled with the Spirit so that Christ is on display as we go out into this hopeless and helpless world around us and point to the hope and help from heaven. Sir, You are a marked man. Ma'am, you are a marked woman. You're either marked by your sinful, selfish desires or you're marked as belonging to the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. I'll make a few comments before the servers come to serve us this morning. Let's pray together. Father, we want to be those who are enslaved to you, not to sin. Lord, we want to be men and women and boys and girls who have pledged our allegiance to your kingdom first, not something lesser. 
Lord, we know that everybody is a worshiper. Now, they may worship differently and express it this way or that, but everybody is a worshiper. God, we want to be a people that worship you alone, not the idols that are a poor substitute that lead us to death and destruction. And Father, we want to be marked as having been fully pardoned by the judge of judges not condemned in our own sin. As we prepare our hearts now for this moment around the Lord's table, this is your table, Lord. I will give space to my brothers and sisters here this morning to confess any sins that they have yet to deal with and want to bring to you. In Jesus' name, amen.